All right, welcome back to church. How many of you know it's the first day of March? How many of you, like me, don't like February? All right, we're into March, which is exciting. How many of you know it's supposed to be 48 degrees today? It's fantastic. So if you're not excited about Jesus, at least be excited about the weather, right? It's, hopefully you're excited about both. That's, it should be the other way around. You're exactly right, Joey. So welcome back to church. If you're visiting with us today uh, and would be kind enough to fill out a welcome card, we'd love to have a record of your attendance. That would be awesome. If you have a prayer need, whether you're a visitor or a regular attender, make sure to write it down. Our staff prays for you on a weekly basis. And then if you have kiddos, uh, I think everybody knows this for the most part, but if we missed you, just be aware that we have space for the kids in the lower level that they can access and learn about Jesus in an age-appropriate way. We are in Romans 7. Everybody say Romans 7. Okay, we just moved through the Bible chapter by chapter here. Pretty simple format. So if you brought a Bible with you and want to open to Romans 7, if not, we'll have it on the screen behind me for you. Uh, if you'll remember, in Romans 6, uh, Paul begins the discussion of why Christians who love Jesus still struggle so much with sin. Why is that? Did you ever wonder if Jesus' resurrection power is really available to me, why do I still do X, Y, or Z? Why do I still struggle with those same old temptations that I've always struggled with? Uh, why don't I love God more? Why don't I want to go to church in the morning? Why don't I pay attention to Pastor Zach for 25 minutes instead of 10 and then drift off and watch whatever's happening outside of the windows? Why is it? What's going on with me? Why is prayer hard at times? If that's you, you're here on the right day. Because the Apostle Paul is going to be very, very vulnerable with us. This guy encountered Jesus personally. And yet today he's going to talk about his own struggle. It's one of the most encouraging, reassuring texts in the entire Bible. I will tell you it is meaty. Turn to your neighbor and say, buckle up. Say this to them, don't get bored. Okay, this is going to be academic. I'm just warning you in advance. It's the way much of Romans is. You can stop repeating now, Art. Thank you. <laughs> it's going to be academic. So we're going to wade through that, and hopefully at the end we're going to get to some practical application. So have you ever heard of Robert Louis Stevenson's classic, Dr. Jekyll? and Mr. Hyde. Two people are nodding yes. Okay, a few others. Thank you. So, uh, by the way, the definition of a classic book, I've heard said, is books that everyone knows about, but nobody actually reads. Have you ever heard that definition? That's kind of true with me. Um, this is the one that's worth reading because Stevenson, who is actually a believer... Believe it or not, he loved Jesus. Um, he was inspired by Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7 when he wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, in this story, Dr. Jekyll, as you may or may not recall, is a fine, upstanding citizen in the community and, and, and clean cut and, and doing all the right things and crossing T's and dotting I's, and he's frustrated. 
because he sees inside of himself a bad part of his own humanity. And so he invents this, this, what he calls, incongruous compound uh, of good and bad mixed together. And being a chemist, he develops this potion that basically separates the good and bad parts of himself according to time. So that during the daylight hours, he remains... Dr. Jekyll, but in the nighttime hours, he becomes Mr. Hyde, who is uh, who derives his name from, from the words hideous or hidden. Um, so the two don't exist together anymore. They exist alone, and therefore, they're not restraining each other in any way. The problem, as he tells the story, uh, Mr. Stevenson, or the author, is, is that the evil part of Mr. Hyde was far more evil than he'd ever imagined when not restrained by the good of Dr. Jekyll. And he's spiteful, and he's angry, and he's vengeful. He even murders people. Dr. Jekyll said, I was tenfold more wicked than I ever thought. And the author, speaking through Dr. Jekyll, explains, I discovered through this process that man is not truly one, but two. It wasn't that I was a hypocrite. Both sides of me were completely sincere. Okay. Now, the Apostle Paul is basically going to tell us the same thing today. Inside of us are two natures. One that honors God, the other that disobeys and runs from him. Both are sincere. Both are a part of our humanity. I mean, can we just be vulnerable today? Does that resonate with anybody here besides myself? Okay? So I feel like myself, an incongruous compound <laughs> at times. Um, completely opposite people at times. Um, we were at a water park this weekend with my kids. And one moment, I'm absolutely in love with them. <laughs> and it's blissful. And another moment, I'm wanting to strangle them. Because we're at the top of a slide and one kid wants to go down and the other kid doesn't have the courage. So what do you do as a parent? And of course, you go down with the one that has the courage and you send the other one walking down the stairs by himself, right? That's what you do. But you get the idea. Um, let's just be honest this morning. Paul talks about in Romans 7 what he's like pre-Christ and what he's like post-Christ or after becoming a Christian. Tim Keller said this section of Romans 7 can be divided. By the way, just to, just to take up for me for a minute, I did ascend the stairs again with the kid who wanted to come down and we conquered Okay, so it just took a little bit of dadding, but we made it happen. So um, pre-Christ and, and, and after, after encountering Jesus, Tim Keller says this, this chapter is basically three sections, 7 through 13, uh, verses 7 through 13, he calls the battle we can't possibly win. We'll talk about that. Uh, verses 14 through 25, a battle we cannot lose a battle we cannot lose. And then in verses 1 through 6, Paul really gives an, an analogy 
that we will postpone any commentary on until the very end because it kind of has the appearance of being disconnected and not pertaining to the whole of the chapter, even though it very much does. I will begin reading it to you, the first uh, few verses, again, warning you that they will sound weird, they will sound random, uh, but the analogy is actually quite brilliant. So here we go. First pass through Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Do you not know that? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage, and accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I have no idea what Paul's talking about. Okay, so we're going to get into it eventually. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. So here's his point. Pre-Christ, believers are married to a law, okay? The law, he has explained throughout Romans, is this standard that you believe it could be a religious law, but not everyone's religious. But everybody has some kind of law, some kind of standard that they believe proves, proves that they are worthy. That they measure up. Okay? That they are valuable. All right? So humans are married to that before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. Whatever standard you had before Jesus, that was the center of your life. It established your worth. It may have been, again, religious. You were a good enough God-fearer, believer, so God was going to take care of you, or it could have been a secular. If you had good enough grades, then, then you were pleased with yourself, and that meant you were an upstanding person, or if you had enough talent, or if you worked hard enough, or if you were a good enough mom, or, or if you were a successful businessman, or, or if you had enough in your 401k, or whatever it was in your mind, fill in the blank, that I'm doing good in life. I'm above reproach. I'm valuable. I matter. I'm winning. You name it. When you become a Christian, Paul says, and you believe in Jesus, you die to that standard. It is no longer what gives you in your own eyes worth and significance and value. You died to the keeping of your own law as the basis of your acceptance. So now, figuratively speaking, you're measured, or rather married, to who? To God. To Jesus Christ. So you now belong to him. You now belong to God who's raised Jesus from the dead so that you can bear fruit for him. That's what Paul's saying in the illustration. We'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. Verses 5 and 6. For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law. Wow. 
our sinful passions, we're aroused by our standards. Interesting. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now that's section one that we just read. We'll move on to section two for the moment. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? That our standards are, 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 are sinful? Um, Paul is, is here reading the minds of his religious hearers, listeners, readers, we should say, um, and, and anticipating their objections to what, he's, to what he's communicating. He knows that his Jewish, Jewish readers are thinking this, Paul, you're pretty hard on the law that we've placed merit in for years and really generations, centuries. You're pretty tough on, on the law. It arouses sinful passions. It multiplies sin. It, 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 we need to die to it? Like, really? Like, we're the people that, that tape the law in boxes to our foreheads. Scriptures we've memorized. We parade ourselves through the village squares to show people how many verses we've memorized. Surely you're not talking about the law. That's our way of life, obeying what the law says. And he says in verse 7, aren't, aren't you saying the law is bad? Is that what you're saying, Paul? He says, by no means. In fact, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin to begin with. For I would, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, don't covet. So Paul's saying the law's first purpose the law's first purpose was to reveal how sinful we are. To show us how sinful we are. That's the Bible's purpose. To show us that we're in need of Jesus. James would say it's like a mirror. We peer into it and, and we, we see how short we fall from measuring up to God's standard of goodness. Just imagine if you had a full-length mirror at home. Some of us have full-length mirrors. And just imagine in addition to showing you reality, it showed you ideally what you ought to look like. Just imagine it put a little outline on the mirror of the right build, the right weight, the right physique you ought to have overlaid on top of the real image of yourself. How many of you would say that would be a depressing day if my mirror did that, right? How many of you would say I would probably have a, some in the love handle region that I should have in the bicep region. Anybody? Okay. This is just the way, way life works, right? James said, that's the purpose of the law. Paul says, that's what the law does. The law says, here's where you should be. Now compare that to where your heart actually is. For example, he says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. Coveting, of course, is what? Wanting what someone else has, okay? Feeling like you cannot be satisfied until you have what they have. Um, the law said the righteous heart, the healthy heart, the godly heart is a heart that does not, it's the 10th commandment, covet. Paul says, I learned that I ought not covet, 
by reading the law. So the law is still a good thing. Verse 8, but sin, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the law, through the command, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, before the law, sin lies dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. In other words, I didn't even know my coveting was a bad thing until I read the law. I was feeling alive. I was feeling healthy until the law showed me that I didn't measure up to God's standard. Life was good until I read the law. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which then is good bring death to me? Of course not. It was the sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, I told you this was going to be meaty. This is difficult text. It's complicated. What does he mean by all this? Verse 9, he says, again, I, w- I was once alive apart from the law. Before I really thought about coveting the 10th commandment, I felt alive. I coveted. It didn't bother me to covet. And he looked at himself as a pretty good person. He knew the Ten Commandments. He did before he came to faith in Christ. He thought of himself, or to himself, rather, well, I've never committed adultery. I don't steal. I've never killed, at least not until he started murdering Christians, but earlier in his life, I'd never killed. I care for my parents. I don't sacrifice things to idols. I observe the Sabbath faithfully. I do every, I give God a tenth of my income, but then, then he read the 10th commandment and it said, you shall not covet. And all of a sudden, instead of being an objective standard about outward behavior, this one pointed to the human heart and all he could do was admit that he fell short. I want what other people have. I'll acknowledge it. It had nothing to do with external obedience. It focused on his, on his heart. And so Paul realized, even with all of my religiosity, even with all of my external conformity, my heart wants what other people have. He knew deep down inside he was envious of other people. And to make matters worse, Martin Luther would, would, would much later point out that this commandment is behind all of the other commandments. Meaning, effectively, uh, and he says that's why it came last. Um, why do we steal, Luther says. Why do we steal? Because we want what somebody else has, right? Why do we lie? Why do we lie? Because quite often we want something that we can't get by telling the what? The truth. So coveting's behind all of the other commandments. So we exaggerate our accomplishments or we minimize our faults. How many of you would think it possible that someone would exaggerate their accomplishments or minimize their faults at a job interview? Hello? 
So Paul saw that he was guilty at the heart level, even though his external actions looked pretty darn good to everybody else. And then, here was the real twist, Paul started to see, even in his zeal for religion, even in his passion, it was fueled itself by covetousness, meaning he observed that his internal heart motivations for even pursuing God was that he wanted to be respected. He wanted a certain status among the people. He wanted a distinction relative to others. So what did he do? Well, he'd pray a little louder, of course. He'd hold his head a little higher, of course. He'd attend church more frequently, of course. But it was for the wrong motivation. So what did he do when he realized that one of his primary motivators in even his religion was itself sinful. He felt like he died. That's when the wheels came off. He only became more insecure in his relationship with God. He, he made him, it made him even more zealous than to pursue religion. And it was this big, nasty, unhealthy cycle of trying to prove himself worthy only to be left unfulfilled. Only to observe that he was breaking that 10th commandment again. So his attempts to keep the command, he says, made him worse. That is what he means by saying, sin through the commandment produced me coveting of every kind. That is what he means when he says, sin sprang to life again and I died. That is what he means when he says, sin produced death in me through what is good, so that sin might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, hang with me. Paul's saying the harder I, let me summarize it. The harder I tried to keep the law, to prove that I was a worthy person, the more I noticed myself coveting, the more insecure I became in my relationship with God, the more my jealousy flared. So then I started to realize I need another solution apart from rule keeping. I need another solution apart from standard keeping. Do you remember when Jesus, much later, appeared to Saul on the road to Damascus and the bright light shone down and, and he was blinded? And do you remember the odd comment that Jesus made? It was this, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you, an unusual word's coming up, to kick against the goats. What kind of word is that? Goads. G-O-A-D-S. Rhymes with toads. What is that? Goads is a farming utensil. Goads are, are rods that are pokers, basically, like you'd have at a weenie roast, except they're used to stick into the back legs of oxen when they're not working hard enough. And so Paul was saying, or rather Jesus was saying, Paul, Paul, why are you kicking against the goats. In other words, I, Jesus, am the farmer. You are the mule. 
And you're resisting, kicking against the Holy Spirit trying to prod you and pry you from your dependence on rule keeping. So that you understand that salvation doesn't come through yourself. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing with Paul. Poking him. Prodding him. So this was the battle that he couldn't and that none of us can win. The second uh, battle that Keller mentions by way of categorization is the battle we can't lose. Paul, in these verses, subtly shifts from his discussion of his pre-Christ days, and now he's going to jump into his life as a mature Christian, as an apostle, post getting knocked off his horse. Now he's following Jesus. Listen to this. This is crazy. Not a whole lot changes. Verse 7, or rather verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under what? Sin. For I do not understand my own actions. What I'm about to read to you is the most encouraging passage in all of Scripture. Listen to the apostle and what he says about himself. I mean, this is gut level. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What Paul's saying is, I am no longer the one doing the sin. Paul's saying, there's a new me, a new I, the redeemed man that Jesus Christ has taken over, the Dr. Jekyll, if you will, but there's still sinful desires in my own body. If I'm a nerd before I get saved, I'm still going to be a nerd after I get saved. I'm still going to dabble in this stuff. This is the Mr. Hyde that's now sinning. Remember uh, last week how we, we used an analogy, the allied powers taking over Berlin. And, and what happened? The capital has been taken, but who's still running amok in the countryside? Nazis terrorizing villages. The war has been won. They don't know it, or maybe they do. So there's little pockets that are still wreaking havoc on the local people. Okay, listen to this next verse. This is staggering. For I know, Paul says, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. I have the desire to do what is right over here, but I cannot carry it out. What does that mean, in my flesh? Flesh doesn't mean in the physical. Flesh means all of you, mind, body, spirit. Uh, apart from Jesus, flesh, flesh means a totality of, of our sinful nature. He's saying, apart from God over here, I'm just going to acquiesce to the things that I've done formally. I'm no good. And we saw in Romans 3, this wasn't to say that we can never do good things or kind things. This is just to say that apart from Christ, our hearts are so corrupt, so curved inward on uh, themselves away from God that we can't consider calling them good. It just really doesn't make sense. It's not an adjective that works. And Paul's saying, now that I'm a Christian, I have both natures existing inside of me. Equally sincere. Here's the new me, the real me, saved by grace. 
resurrected with Christ, the guy that wants to please the Lord and do what's right. But then there's that other nature, the sin nature, the old man, the guy that does whatever he wants to do only to please himself. Paul says, I desire to do what is good, but then I have no ability to do it. I want to serve Jesus, but my flesh is like, nope, not going to happen. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many of you would say, this sounds like me at some point in my life. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, the new me in Jesus, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, what lies close at hand? Evil. You ever feel like you have such good intentions and so little progress? Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. Here's the thing, we can even be hungry for the word. We can be hungry for the Bible. He was hungry for the Bible. In my inner being, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In other words, I've repented. I've acknowledged Jesus as Lord. I want to do his law. Unbelievers would never say this. He's a believer. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, what a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. And this last verse is the only measure of hope that we have in the chapter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then just in case you didn't get it, he says it one more time. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of what? Sin. Let me boil this section down into two main insights. Number one, believers have a constant war, if you haven't noticed, going on inside of them. Inside of them. People who love Jesus Christ with all their heart have a war that wages every day inside of them. Um, and in, in the event that you're a little suspect of what I'll call my Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde theology, okay? Paul teaches this repeatedly, actually, through his letters. This is not the only instance. In Galatians 5, he says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Colossians 3.9, Paul describes it in terms of two selves. The old self, the new self, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Notice that he calls them both selves. They're both a part of our self. Even though one is dead, they're still both us. Here's what most people don't understand. When you become a Christian, the old self does not go away. It doesn't go away. When you become a Christian, the sin doesn't even lose its strength. 
okay? And if you cater to the old nature, the enemy of God will come in and he will ruin you. He's the same vengeful predator. He's always been, the Bible says, he is like a lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. Okay, insight number two, and we're done. Knowing I have ultimate victory changes my disposition in the fight. Knowing I have ultimate victory. Let's talk about the last verse. Even though I wrestle with the same sinful flesh, I have a different outlook or disposition. First, I know that my sinful cravings are not the real me anymore. We talked about this last week. That's the old me. This is, that's the dead me. This is the new me alive in Christ, the, the future me. Here's uh, why that change of thinking is important. Suppose in your old life you had this sinful habit and you just loved it. It was like a chocolate morsel on your palate. It tasted so good. When you meet Jesus, you may fall back into it and then you feel bad and you beat yourself up and you think I'm supposed to be good and new over here and you're a Christian and you still struggle with it and and it happens. Hello? That happens to us. And so you start saying, see, nothing has changed. What am I doing? Because you feel like you're in a battle that you can't win. But that's the wrong thinking because you're in a battle that you cannot lose. You may still struggle, but the ultimate outcome has already been determined because of what Jesus did on the cross. So, as you continue to see yourself over here as a child of God, the king, you start to say, man, that stuff doesn't taste quite as good as it used to. Man, I just don't have the palate for that anymore. That's just not as flavorful for me. It just doesn't satisfy like it did five years ago. And that's because it's no longer expressive of your new self, your very real self. Because in your innermost being, who do you desire more? God. You want to follow God. Let me tell you a story. My, uh, I'll tell you a funny story, okay? How many of you say, I could use a funny story after this meaty, boring sermon, okay? All right, here it comes. Here's your chance, your funny story. Um, my dad's friend Tom is in his 60s. Tom is as country as cornbread. He lives in North Carolina. He's uh, married now. He was married prior, married early in his uh, 20s, um, lived the life of a hellraiser. I mean, didn't know God, sinned, ran amok, doing all kinds of things, went through a divorce in his 20s, met Jesus, married again. Are you following the story thus far? Married again um, about the time I was born. They had a kid who ended up being my best buddy in school, ended up standing up in my wedding. They now have believing children, believing grandchildren. And a couple years ago, Tom was grieving the loss of his mother, of his mother. And he was at her visitation, at his mom's visitation, welcoming people who had come by to pay their respects and greeting them. And, and, a, and a lady came through the line, and he's standing with his wife of now 30 years. And a lady came through the line, and, he, and, and, and she paid her respects and moved on. And she looked at, he looked at Anne, his, his second wife, and, 
and, and said, Ann, who was that? And she said, Tom, that was your first wife. True story. He didn't even recognize his first wife. Tom's old self was gone. He had nearly no recollection of his past identity or the people associated with it, apart from Jesus. I'll give you one more uh, concluding illustration that will wrap up this idea of who we're wed to now, rather than the law and rules. Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers in, in high school, um, said you can walk into a house and you can always tell the difference when you walk into somebody else's house between a grace dog and a law dog. Okay? He says a law dog always has its tail tucked between its legs. A law dog is intimidated by its master, so it's, con uh, so it's uh, 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 not confidently or consequently, it's constantly afraid. Okay, so the master says, do this or I'm going to spank you with a newspaper. Okay, and it's a miserable dog. He said, and then you can walk into the house and meet a grace dog. And you'll know you've met a grace dog because the tail is wagging when the master comes home. Because the grace dog loves its master. And it's obedient to its master, but it's obedient due to an entirely different reason. It's obedient because it's been loved. Because it's been adored. Because it's been treasured. The dog just wants to make the master happy. Okay, and his point is, God wants grace dogs, not law dogs. We don't try to execute the Christian life because we're scared of what our master might do to us. We try our best to execute the Christian life because we're grateful for what he's done for us and because we just want to please him. Because it brings us joy to please him. Amen? That's a grace dog. Okay, by the way, there's no corollary whatsoever with cats. There are only law cats, just so you're aware, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you. We love you, Lord. Father, I pray that none of us would be married to religion. I pray that we would all know that church attendance and even prayers disciplines of any kind are for the birds if our heart is not in the right place. Lord, still our heart, show us that we are dependent on you, our Savior, that we cannot save ourselves, that grace is a free gift, 
And Lord, let us just wag our tails, gleefully serving you, obedient to our master because of what you've done for us. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.